Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Step one tonight, I'm going to bring up Chris S. Good evening, everybody. My name is Chris, and I am an alcoholic. Uh, Step one. Um, My home group is the Spiritual Awakenings Group in Burnsville, New Jersey. Uh, I'm also going back to uh, the Somerset Hills Group. It's been my home group off and on since about 1991. Um, Since my second day back in AA, I've been sponsored. um, Since my first year in AA, I've been sponsoring. I think all of that is important. I've been consistent with my meetings. Uh, And... Along the way, I got exposed to some people who really had a good handle on the actual practice of the 12 steps, the actual mechanics, the how-to of the 12 steps. And uh, I, you know, I'm very, very grateful, uh, very, very grateful for that. But you know, one of the things in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, uh, today is uh, rarely do people fully comprehend the first step. Uh, we go to step meetings and we read the first step in the step book and there's first step meetings that we go to galore and the only step you have to do perfectly is the first step and we hear all this stuff but in the, in the, in, for the most part probably about 80% of the people in AA don't understand what the first step is. You can be around 20, 30 years and not have a clue what the first step is. I, you know, to this day, I'll sit in meetings and somebody will raise their hand and say, you know, I got to keep the first step green. I just don't take a drink no matter what. Now, that is about as far away from the first step as you can possibly get. A true understanding of the first step would never include, I don't take a drink no matter what. Because in the first step, it tells you you can't do anything. If you could have stopped drinking on your own, you probably would have. If you have power over alcohol, you are not an alcoholic. All of this information is in the first step, and it's so often missed uh, because of, you know, uh, the the way Alcoholics Anonymous is, is moved into fellowship and oral tradition. But I believe in getting back to the book Alcoholics Anonymous for for an understanding of the recovery program. Anything and everything is okay, I think, in the fellowship. I'm very, very liberal uh, when I'm speaking about the fellowship. I I really want there to be a lot of room and a lot of freedom for, you know, uh, uh, each of us to be our own, uh, own person. But when it comes to working the steps, I'm very, very conservative. And that comes from a long, uh, uh, long years of experience working with other people. For one reason or another, uh, I am, uh, uh, I'm always working with people. People uh, have, have uh, asked me to sponsor them on an almost continuous basis for the last 20 years. And there's been periods of time where I've had 50 active sponsees, you know, at one time. I mean, I don't do that anymore. I, I think there was a little bit too much ego involved in, in that period of my uh, my sponsorship. But uh, 
But I do, I do take it, I do take it seriously, and I've seen what works, and I've seen what doesn't work. And I think the greatest question that you can be asked in Alcoholics Anonymous is, how's that working for you? And if it's working for you, hold on to it. If your experience shows you that that's something that works for you, then please hang on to it. However, if you're still running up against the same stuff time and time again, have an open mind and be open to some new material because I'm telling you, Practically anything that you need uh, for moving out of alcoholism into a real productive life is in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. It's in there. And it's a matter of us uh, uh, coming to terms with um, the necessity to apply these things in our life. Now, my first year or so in Alcoholics Anonymous... I had some really bad belief systems. Um, some of them kept me sober, tentatively, like barely. Uh, one of them was meetings treat my, treat my alcoholism. Uh, meetings, I thought that meetings treated my alcoholism. I would hear things like people say, you know, you know, I went to this wedding and there was alcohol everywhere and it really freaked me out, so I'm doubling up on my meetings this week. So, I, you know, I, I started to believe that meetings were my frontline defense against alcoholism. Now, um, today, today I understand what the fellowship offers you. There are fellowship promises. There's benefits to being in a fellowship. Everything starts from the fellowship. But what I was doing was I was doing a whole lot of fellowship in my first year and expecting recovery. And I wasn't getting it. I was getting bad sobriety. And that's really what you're going to get if all you do is, is go to meetings like crazy. You're going to get bad sobriety. Yes, you'll probably stay sober, but it ain't going to be pretty. And you're going to be awful cranky you know, out there in the world when you're dealing with people. You're going to have every character defect. You're going to be sharing in the closed-minded discussion meetings like a fool about how the world is against you. You know, that's what you're going to get if all you're trying to do to treat your alcoholism is go to meetings. Now, you know, where did, where did I get exposed to this stuff? It was not in the meetings, uh, or, or I wasn't hearing. You know, I've, I've kind of stopped... Try, I've tried to stop criticizing the earlier meetings that I was going to back in uh, the late 80s and the early 90s because I, I understand today that there's, there's the transmission of the message and then there's the receiver. And I'm kind of in charge of the receiver. And the receiver is up here. And there's a lot of times I filter out stuff that I don't want to hear. So there very well may have been a strong recovery message in those early meetings. I didn't hear it. I, I, heard, uh, I heard the don't drink and go to meetings, you know, make coffee, uh, take a commitment, never say no to an AA request. I, you know, I heard all those things. I didn't really hear any of the recovery stuff. What happened was uh, I, um, I've always been a collector of, of music. Um, I, I've always had large music collections, and I'm always out there looking for new artists and new, new interesting things. And uh, I, was in a, uh, I was in a store one time, and I was very early in AA, and I saw the section for self-help, and I saw AA tapes. This was at a store in New Hope, Pennsylvania, like a, 
a new age bookstore kind of a thing. And I looked over there and there was a, there was Clancy's four tape set on the 12 steps and there was a couple of other things. And that got me involved in buying and listening to recovery tapes. I, I had a long commute to work. I'd throw the recovery tape in. It'd be like an extra meeting because meetings really are what it's all about, right? You know, so I'm, I'm going to double up on my meetings by listening to them in the car. Now, I got a catalog uh, in the mail. And in this catalog, I'm going through it, and there was a, there was a, uh, a section, there was a person named Joe Hawk, Salvation Army Big Book Study. And this is like 1990, 1991. And I go, I wonder what an American Indian would have to say about recovery. So I ordered this, I ordered this tape set. You know, Joe Hook. He, he later became a very good friend of mine, uh, by the way, which uh, I'll always cherish. Joe's, Joe's not with us anymore, but he certainly is in spirit. Anyway, I started listening to this. This, this was a series of tapes that was done around 1986 or so. And uh, a Salvation Army commitment asked this individual to come out and do the big book, teach the steps like you do in in your living room, Joe, because he was getting to be known as somebody who would take you through the steps at his house, which in the 80s was weird. You really had to worry about somebody that would want you to come over to their house. But, but he was getting, you know, everybody was staying sober that was doing this with him. So, uh, so somebody said, will you please just do it at the Salvation Army? So, so uh, he brought a friend of his with him because he had a lot of sponsees, and one of them couldn't read. So uh, the guy who couldn't read said, Joe, do you mind if I tape your talk because you're going to be reading out of the big book? I'll listen to the tapes, and that's how I'll learn the big book because I can't read. And, and Joe said, sure, go ahead, do it. Knock yourself out. So the guy taped 12 one-hour sessions at the Salvation Army with Joe Hawk teaching the big book. Now, what happened was uh, people heard that these tapes were out there. This guy had these tapes. So he got inundated with people asking him for copies. Finally, he said, the hell with this, and gave the, gave the masters to a tape company, you know, one of the recovery tape companies. And they listened to it and they, you know, they said, oh my God, and they started spreading it around. And it became quite possibly the most influential big book study of all time. And Joe had no idea that it was going to go any further than the room. And, you know, it's just one of those great stories. But here I am, I'm in 1990, 1991 listening to this. And it goes at odds with a lot of the things that I, I had come to believe in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it, but, but there was so much truth, there was so much experience behind this message that it made a distinct impact on me. And it started me toward this conservative, big book recovery-based uh, philosophy and practical application that I, you know, I've been doing for the last 20 years, and I'm very, very grateful for it. Now, in this, in this series of, ta- of, of uh, tapes is where I learned something very, very significant about step one. Now, let me ask you this. We've all got drinking histories. We've all just, there's been debacles and episodes and blackouts, and, and you, you know, we've got crazy things that have happened in our past. Has anybody ever come up to you and said, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? You know? You really couldn't answer that, 
Could you? Like, really? That's not like a question that, you know, you're really going to deliberate on and really try to find a, a true answer to. It's just an inconvenient question. Like, what's wrong with you? You, you drove over the Rosenblum's uh, shrubberies last night leaving the party. What's wrong with you, you know? You'll, you'll come up with an excuse or whatever, but, but really alcoholism is so misunderstood on so many different levels, we don't know what's wrong with us. We haven't a clue what's wrong with us. The amazing thing is, is that Bill Wilson and these, these first 100 or so alcoholics back in the 30s figured it out. They figured out what's wrong with us, like really They understood that it's not the drinking. It's really a spiritual malady. It's really a spiritual illness, alcoholism. That we're just throwing alcohol on this illness to be able to deal. You know, the true alcoholic doesn't know what the heck is going on. So step one is a problem statement. Step one is what's wrong with you answered. And in the book Alcoholics Anonymous it talks about three basic levels. It talks about the allergy of the body or the phenomenon of craving. Now this is, this is something that I, I kind of intuitively understood when I was out there drinking. I mean, I never thought about it at a deep level, but I, I kind of understood my reaction to alcohol was a little bit different than the people I would drink with, a lot of the people that I would drink with. Because, that, you know, when I started drinking, I got the job done. I don't know about anybody else, but I was in it to get the job done. If you were one of those people who could have two or three drinks and say, well, you know, I'm starting to feel it, I better go home to the wifey, you know, I've got work tomorrow. I didn't understand that kind of a reaction to alcohol. And so I I mainly tried never to drink with you again. You know what I mean? Like, like I'd like to drink with the people who knew how to get the job done. Because when I started drinking, what happens is, physiologically, the alcohol, because we are alcoholic, our pancreases and our livers... Our digestive enzyme systems break down alcohol in a different way than a normal person. Aunt Fanny and Uncle Fudd don't have two glasses of wine and then end up at the Betty. You know what I mean? They, they can have two glasses of wine, they, and then they can eat Thanksgiving dinner and everything's fine. They can have a cognac later that evening. That's a normal reaction to alcohol. My reaction to alcohol is once it's in there, It starts up a motor that wants to keep running. One drink always did something for me. It asked for the second drink. The second drink always insisted on the third drink. The third drink always demanded the fourth drink. Now there was periods of time where I could control this monster and only have two or three, but I was never comfortable doing that. I always wanted more. And the last five years of my drinking, you know, when I picked up a bottle, I had my schedule cleared. You know what I mean? My schedule is clear. I'm not going to be going to traffic court later or some, you know, going, going over to, to meet the new in-laws or any of that crap. I had like a, I had like a cleared schedule because I'm going to be drinking. And when, I, and when I'm drinking, I'm drinking. 
Okay, the phone's off. I'm not answering the door. I'm about the business of drinking. Now, uh, that was my last four or five years. So every single time in the last four or five years, I picked up a drink. I drank until I was unconscious. Now, it was 15 years later um, when I started messing around with some of the treatment professionals. Uh, I got involved in the last three or four years. Uh, I've been involved in the treatment industry for the addiction and alcoholism treatment industry. And I've learned some things. And I've learned some of the things that the, the addiction uh, uh, doctors say about drinking until you're unconscious. They see someone who's in a blackout drinking to unconscious as... Um, Someone who has, uh, is, is experiencing alcohol poisoning, for it to put you into a blackout and then render you unconscious, that is poisoning by alcohol. I thought it was just passing out. But no, it's a, it's a much more devastating thing to your body. It is overdosing on ethanol alcohol is what it is, and being rendered unconscious. Uh, that happened to me every single time I picked up a drink in my last four or five years. It's a wonder I'm alive. It's a wonder many of us made it that far. Now, the second part is what I didn't understand. It is, there's a great line in the step book. It says, who among us wishes to admit complete defeat? You know, who among us wishes to take the first step? That statement is so true that people in Alcoholics Anonymous over the last 40 years have been changing the first step to something they could deal with. And that's, that's what I was hearing in AA meetings in the late 80s and the early 90s. What the fellowship had turned step one into because they could not admit complete defeat, like it says in the step book. Now, here's, here's the second part of the first step. The obsession of the mind. Now, this is difficult to deal with uh, because it's so saying we don't have any control. And if you go into treatment, they're going to try to teach you that you have control. So the people that come out of treatment programs, they way don't understand step one because they've been taught to look for triggers and they've been taught to you know, keep their memory green and all this other stuff that does not work if you're an alcoholic. Now here's how the, here's how the obsession of the mind presents in an alcoholic. In your, in your thought process, there are millions of decisions that are being made in your mind every minute. You know, every time you move a muscle, there are, there are decisions that are being made in your mind. And there are thought processes, and a lot of thought processes are in there. And I might have thought processes like, don't take a drink no matter what. Keep it simple, first things first. Keep your memory green. Go into a meeting tonight. Got to make coffee. Every single time I drink, it's trouble. I can have all those thoughts and they can be in my mind. But an obsession is a thought that leapfrogs to the head of all your other thoughts and becomes paramount. 
So all of a sudden, I'm walking down the road, going to an AA meeting, you know, never going to drink again. The sobriety stuff is wonderful. There's a liquor store. I think I'll buy a gallon of vodka, buy a gallon of vodka, start drinking it. And then, and, and I come to, an hour later, banging the bar, wondering how the hell could this have happened to me? And there's a lot of people that want to tell me I made the choice to drink. And that didn't make any sense to me. It didn't make any sense to me because I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to drink and I was drinking. For the last four or five years of my drinking, I didn't want to drink and I was drinking. So what is that? What is that? That's an obsession of the mind. I'll talk about one of my own personal experiences and how this worked. I signed myself into a 28-day treatment program. Signed myself. I was the only person in there who voluntarily signed themselves in without any coercion from outside forces. It wasn't because of DUIs. wasn't because of pissed off bosses. I just, alcohol was getting my attention and I, I wanted to separate from it. So I figured if I went to this treatment center, that would give me my best option. So I paid $13,000 to lock myself in a lockup facility where they're going to tell me to make my own bed and I, I didn't have permission to, to smoke. I, I mean, if you knew anything about me, you'd know just how alien something like that was. I mean, I really must have needed and wanted help to do something like that, to put myself in a position where I had no freedom. So I put myself in the treatment center. I got out of the treatment center. They told me, you know, you probably should go to AA, but you better go to outpatient. So I'm going to outpatient I'm two nights a week, a Tuesday and a Thursday. I'm going to two AA meetings a week. That's four nights a week during primetime TV. I, you know, I, what more do you people want, you know? And, and I told everybody I knew that uh, I was done drinking. I was going, to, going there and with the A&As, and I'm not drinking, and I'm going to outpatient. And, I'm, you know, I, I, I see the light, and I'm, I'm telling my boss and my family and everything, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not drinking. Now, one day on the way to an AA meeting, the thought crosses my mind that, you know, I haven't been drunk in almost three months. As a matter of fact, I don't, I don't even really remember what it's like to be drunk. It's been so long, you know, and, and I'm not really getting with this AA stuff. I'm not really having a lot of fun, and, and I don't like the outpatient. I'll, I'll tell you what, I bet if I bought a gallon of vodka and I drank it, it, it would reinvigorate my enthusiasm for all this recovery stuff. I mean, I mean I'd run back to AA, you know, on fire, and, and you know, I would, un and I'd remember what it's because some idiot said, if you can't remember your last drunk, you haven't had it, and you know, I couldn't, I couldn't remember my last week, you know, so, so I thought, you know, I'll tell you what, I, I probably, this will probably work. This is a good idea, you know. So I stop at the liquor store instead of going to the AA meeting. This is going to work better. I'll, I bought a gallon of vodka, I took it home, and I started drinking it, and you know, I had big, huge glass. Good idea, good idea. Big, huge glass. This is working. This is working. All of a sudden, I started to get drunk, and it woke me up. Like, like it says in the big book, you start banging your fist on the bar saying, how the hell could this happen again? And I go, oh, my God, I can't believe I did this again. I open, I, I'm opening up the cage door to the beast. The beast is going to shove his arm up my ass and move me around like a puppet for the next six months. And I'm not going to have anything to say about it. What the hell did I do? And that's exactly what happened. Seven months later, when I, when I threatened to kill my entire family with a 38 caliber handgun, you know, I started one more detox. 
Now, listen, I had signed myself into a treatment center. I was going to outpatient. I was going to AA. I told everybody I wasn't drinking. There wouldn't be a person in any AA room that wanted to separate from alcohol more than I did. And I stopped at the liquor store and bought a gallon of vodka. What the hell is that? What is that? That's not being stupid. I'm not stupid. I'm not a stupid person. It's that obsession of the mind, that idea that alcohol would be good right now, jumping to the head of the list in my thought process. And it's an obsession of the mind, and you aren't even there. You're not even conscious to it. When it says in step two, restore us to sanity, you know what sanity means? You know where the word sanity comes from? Sanity is not a psychological or psychiatric term. It's a legal term. About 400 years ago, when the, the justices of the peace were putting people in jail who were, who were challenged, mentally challenged people who really didn't know what they were doing, if they were stealing an apple off of somebody's cart, they did not deserve to have their hand chopped off because they didn't know right from wrong. They didn't know good from bad. They just saw an apple. They didn't have the capacity to understand that what they were doing was wrong. So they invented the insanity defense. The insanity defense is basically if you get off on the insanity defense, you have to prove that you did not know right from wrong. You did not have the capacity to understand truth from false. Now, if I need to be restored to sanity, what that means is I'm insane where alcohol is concerned. I have absolutely no say in whether it goes in my body or not or when that happens. That's what the first step is. The first step isn't, I just don't drink no matter what, even if my ass falls off. No, it's not. The first step is you won't even be there when you drink. You'll come to five drinks into it wondering what the hell happened. That's what alcoholism is. That's what the first step is. You, you have no power. We admitted we were powerless. If you had any power at all to stay away from a drink yourself, could you say you're powerless? No. So why do we keep saying to ourselves and to other people, expecting other people to not drink using their willpower? Willpower doesn't work. What Bill Wilson and these early AAs discovered was that they're hopeless. Apart from divine aid, they're hopeless. They are going to continue to drink. The people that were wrapped around Towns Hospital were basically chronic relapsers who were in the last stages of acute alcoholism. And they would, they would have to be detoxed because they'd poison themselves so much that they would probably die in the delirium tremens. So they'd go into Towns Hospital, they'd get sobered up, they'd get patted on the head, don't drink no matter what, sure, and, and they'd be right back in about a week or a month later. You know, because the obsession of the mind would hit them. They, Bill, Bill and the boys were working around the town's hospital, and they saw this type of chronic relapsing time and time again, and they had to figure it out. To have any hope of a permanent recovery, you have to figure this out. Well, if I don't have any power, if I can't decide not to drink and have that mean anything, then what kind of hope do I have? What do, what do I do? What am I supposed to do? Well, the strange thing is, 
there was a number of uh, non-denominational evangelical Christian organizations that were uh, that were operating in the country around the turn of the last century. You know, from from the Great Enlightenment, I think the, I think it was the Second Enlightenment in the 1860s, 1880s. Uh, through till about the 1920s. It was uh, a period of religious fervor. Now, you've got to understand they didn't have TV back then. There was mostly no electricity or anything. If you were, were going to do anything with your spare time or at night, you had to do it in big social gatherings. So church was a huge thing back in these days. And, uh, and what would basically happen is in these organizations, is organizations would form that wanted more out of their church experience than just going on Sunday. They wanted, they wanted to feel more. Uh, and I understand that feeling. So these organizations pretty much flourished. And what they were about was they would meet practically every night. Like if you were an Oxford Group member, a Jacoby Club member, uh, an Emmanuel Movement member, you'd meet about every single night. And you'd do something spiritual whether it was going out to help somebody or praying, witnessing, you know, sharing character defects in a confessional type of environment, something. And they were hands-on, these organizations. They got you busy. They got you active. Now, the only survivors of alcoholism around this period of time were people that got involved in those organizations because something really strange would happen when you started to really practice spiritual processes, all of a sudden that obsession of the mind would be pushed far enough away that it wouldn't become operative and you would not take the first drink. Something about participation in these spiritual processes brought about a change of personality, a change of emotional state and mental state that would allow somebody to to step back and stay away from alcohol. And most of the people in AA, most of the people, almost all the people in AA in the first 10 years or so, were people who got sober in these uh, evangelical Christian organizations. So the AAs learned from Silkworth and Towns Hospital what the problem was. The problem is the allergy to the body and the obsession of the mind they started to learn a little bit about the spiritual problem and about the spiritual solution from these Oxford groupers and these religious people. Now, when you look at step one, you see we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. I believe the powerless part is obsession of the mind, allergy of the body. You're powerless over that. Your body is never going to change. If you're truly alcoholic, you'll never be able to drink again safely because your liver and your pancreas are not going to regenerate to the point of pre-alcoholism. That never happens. Uh, So what you have to do is you have to stay away from alcohol. Now, if you've admitted you're powerless over alcohol, you're admitting that you can't stay away from alcohol. So let's look at after the dash. After the dash. It says our lives have become unmanageable. Now in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a number of different references that cover this this unmanageability. Uh, My first exposure to AA came uh, on the tail of a treatment episode. And in the treatment episode, they had me do an exercise. And it was basically a first step prep. They made it sound like it was a four step, but it was... It was not a four-step. They wanted me to write down all the consequences that my drinking had caused. 
And so I put together like 20 pages of debacle, you know, like one horrible experience after the other. It was a very depressing exercise for me. And, uh, and that's what I thought the unmanageability of alcoholism was. All the stuff that happened. Now, I believe there's external unmanageability. Absolutely. You know, uh, we, we can cause a lot of trouble out there drunk. But I think they're talking about a spiritual unmanageability in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, how does the spiritual unmanageability present? There's different, <clears throat> there's different places in the book. I'll just bring up some of them. One place it says we're restless, irritable, and discontented. Anybody in here ever, ever was ever restless, irritable, and discontented? Hello, you know, that's like our normal operational methodology. You know, that's the way we wake up that way, you know, when we're, we're alcoholic. You know, we're, everything annoys us, you know. It's just, it's all a big to-do out there, you know. Uh, that's usually a good day. Then it, then it talks about... Um, then it talks about being prey to misery and depression. You know, feeling that you're not, you're, you're not really doing anything. You're not making a living. You're not developing a decent life. You're, you're prey to shame and guilt and remorse from the things that you've done. You have anxiety. You know, we show up in the hospital all the time because we're having a heart attack. And what it is, it's an, it's an anxiety. It's an alcoholic anxiety attack. Oh, this is the big one! And, and they put you on all the, all the heart monitors and everything, and they start looking at you like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? There's nothing wrong with you. Get the hell out of here. I got sick people in here. <laughs> Get out of my way. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people I know that have, that, that, you know, five years into sobriety because they're not working the steps. You know, they're having these anxiety attacks. So we have anxiety, acute anxiety, depression. Oh my God, the depression that we can have. If you pull alcohol away from us, that's been our sedative for so long. We've been self-medicating with alcohol for so long. All of a sudden you deprive us of, of, of our, our medication. You know, we're going we're gonna to be anxious and we're going to be depressed. 100% of us will suffer from uh, depression and anxiety. So depression is no fun. It is no fun. Um, the alcoholic is 60 times more likely to take their own life through suicide than the non-alcoholic. That's a pretty scary statistic. 60 times more likely than the non-alcoholic. And we do it when we have that depression, when we have that, that feeling of, of uselessness and self-pity that they talk about in the book. And that's a normal day for us. That's what we, that kind of stuff we experience normally. A bad day for us is the hideous four horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. These are all examples of untreated alcoholism, of, of unmanageability in our lives. And what Bill and the early guys figured out was, if you want to treat alcoholism, you've got to treat that unmanageability. You've got to treat that spiritual thing. can't do anything about the body. There's not a treatment known to man that's going to allow us to drink normally. No matter what late night TV says. You know, every once in a while there'll be like this pill. You take, you take two pills and you can drink two drinks normally. My first thought is, well, I'll drink 24 of those pills so that I can drink 24 drinks normally 
and then we can get the job done. You know, it's not, you know, the body is damaged, yes, but even if you could fix the body, you'd never be able to fix my mind. And then that obsession, that obsession of the mind, what happens is, I, I don't even know what activates that. I think the, the unmanageability can activate it, but I only know what deactivates it. What deactivates it is a spiritual awakening. What deactivates it is to practice to, to, one's, to, to the best of one's ability the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that will deactivate that obsession of the mind. Um, I don't know what activates it. Uh, I don't know what was different that day that I was driving to the AA meeting. What was different that day, I have no idea. So I don't know what activates it. I just know what, what deactivates it. And that's all we really need to know. So what these early AAs would do, what these early Oxford group members would do, is they would get busy. They would get busy about the business of spiritual living. They, you know, some of the things that you don't read too much, especially in the AA conference approved literature, is what Bill Wilson was doing in the first couple of years. He literally was getting on top of, literally getting on top of soapboxes, on the corner of New York City streets and proclaiming Jesus as loud as he could. That was part of what he was doing. And he was bringing these drunks in to the preaching meetings where people would get up and they would witness. In, in evangelical services, they still have this. Fundamentalist services, they still have this. People get up and witness about their experience with you know, being, becoming born again. And Bill is bringing these guys in, and they're drunk out of their minds, and handing them a cup of coffee, and sitting them down in the front pew. You know, and then he's then he's off meeting with these guys, figuring out what they can do to find more prospects to help more alcoholics. He was busy about it. Uh, he dedicated his whole life to this crazy stuff. You know, he had nothing better to do. He was unemployable. Uh, and, you know, and they learned a lot in those, those early days. And they learned it by who stayed sober and who didn't. You know? And they were working with low-bottom alcoholics. We don't, get, we don't get the same percentage of low-bottom alcoholics in AA that they did back then. Back then it was primarily people that would have to be medically detoxed. You know, that came into AA. That's not the way it is anymore. Probably only about 10% of the people who show up in AA today uh, to treat their alcoholism are at a point where, you know, they have to be medically detoxed every time they drink. But these were the only people that Bill was working with back in the day. And I'll tell you what, if something worked for those people, because some are sicker than others, if it worked for the people who were really sick, it would work for anybody. And they understood that. And they started to look for best practices. What was working? And when they started to put the big book together about four years later, that's what they did. They assembled the best practices. They assembled the stuff that they knew the people who've been able to remain sober were doing and were busy doing. So, so in... Uh, in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, there's a lot of material on step one. Um, I would say up to uh, the first part of We Agnostics is covering material on step one. But there's step one material uh, uh, spread all throughout the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And these people were low-bottom drunks, I think, I think because uh, uh, 
people come in and, and try to take care of their alcoholism sooner, that that's contributed to moving away from these hardcore big book recovery principles. But, uh, but I, for one, believe very, very strongly in them. For one reason is I'm one of those 10% that need to be medically detoxed. And for the other, if it works for people who are really sick, it'll work for anybody. And it's not... It's not this crazy, onerous thing. Working your way through the steps is not that big of a deal. There's nothing in there that's going to hurt you. The only things that are in there are things that are going to free you. Now, a couple of things about alcoholism that are deadly. They say alcoholism is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And here's part of why alcoholism is so deadly. Almost inherent in the illness alcoholism is an utter inability to recognize just how much trouble you're in. Now, if you've worked with newcomers, you know what I'm talking about right off the bat. But we're all like this. We are all minimizing. I'll tell you what. If every single one of us had an absolutely crystal clear picture of alcoholism and how devastating it is and where we are on the scale of alcoholism... We would take a leave of absence from work, we would go on retreat, and we would work through the steps. And we would do the absolute best we could do. We'd go make every single amends we were consciously aware of. We would form an ironclad prayer and meditation discipline that would start at 5 in the morning and go till 6. And then we'd do it again from 10 o'clock at night to 11. And we would start sponsoring people. And every free minute we would be running around doing commitments. That's what we would do if we had a clear understanding of how much trouble we're in. But none of us do. We're all minimizing. Yeah, alcoholism is is deadly, deadly illness. I've got alcoholism. Alcoholism kills you. But, you know, I'm going to the shore for a week, and I don't think I'll be able to hit a meeting or, you know, I'm I'm not bringing my phone. I don't want to, you know, it's just typical. So we've got to watch for this. We have to at least understand, at least basically, that this is a terminally fatal illness. And unless we get busy participating in the recovery process, it is going to kill us. And it doesn't have to get us drunk to kill us. To die an alcoholic death, you don't necessarily need to be drunk. Many people die alcoholic deaths who are not drunk. They die alcoholic deaths by having untreated alcoholism until they die. That's someone who hasn't gone through the steps is going to have untreated alcoholism. Because the treatment for alcoholism is the steps. So, inherent in the illness alcoholism is an almost utter inability to recognize how much trouble you're in. And that's coupled with a lack of enthusiasm for participating in the recovery process. Every one of us has this. You've got to sometimes force yourself to get out the door and go to the meeting and meet the sponsee that you're supposed to work with. Or you have to force yourself to sit down and write inventory. Yeah, I know this resentment's been eating me up for a month, but, you know, I just, I just don't feel like writing inventory right now. There's a lack of enthusiasm for participating in the recovery process. Those two things are what kill us. Not understanding what alcoholism is, 
and not being enthusiastic about participating in the recovery process. Let me put it this way. Let's say you get, you get, um, you get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. That's not a good cancer to get. Uh, you go to the doctor, and usually the doctor, if they're honest with you, they'll say, well, you, may have, you, you probably have about a year, two years at the max, and it's going to get ugly at the end. Doc, is, isn't there anything? Isn't there anything you can do? Uh, clinical trials, anything? Well, you know, there's, there's these, these people that are working this 12-step procedure on this illness in New York City, and, you know, crazy as it may seem, it looks like they've got about a 75% recovery rate there. You know, whatever the heck they're doing, 75% of the people that are going to them with the pancreatic cancer are, are, are surviving. What do you think you would do if you heard that? You would sell your house, you'd sell your family, you'd quit your job, you'd empty your retirement account, and you would go to New York City, and you would undergo that 12-step process for the pan pancreatic cancer because it's your best, best option to survive. There's a clarity, there's a sense of urgency about what you need to do to survive. Alcoholism doesn't allow you that dignity. It clouds that. It clouds your perception and it clouds your enthusiasm to rush and get involved in a recovery process. We go kicking and screaming into the 12-step process that will give us new lives, a new life, and allow us to survive alcoholism. And we go kicking and screaming into it. It's, it's typical for, for alcoholics. Now, I've had many experiences with, uh, with working with other people. I've had many experiences where the insanity of alcoholism was very, very strong. You know, I remember this one guy, uh, he would relapse, and when he'd relapse, he'd have esophageal varices. Uh, uh, what that is is your, your, your liver and your, your digestive system is just freaking out. There's so much alcohol in it. And it's, it's backing up and it's stalling out. And what happens is it pushes the blood up into the, uh, into the veins that are in your throat and they explode. And you actually, you, actually, you actually hemorrhage out and you start coughing up and choking on your own blood. And most people that get this drowned in their own blood. It's just awful. And this guy had one of them and we started working with him. You know? And it got to the point where all this recovery stuff was just an overreaction to a problem he's got under control. He's not drinking. He hasn't had a drink in two weeks. All this AA and all this other stuff, man, it's just too much. And he, we, lo we, we had to let go of him. I mean, he, he slipped out of our hands. Had another one. First of all, you rarely survive a second one, but this guy survives a second one. And we go and we visit him in, in the hospital, and he's got more tubes sticking in him than I've ever seen in my life. All these things, all these pumps are going and everything. And we're, we're, we shouldn't have even been in there. We, like, kind of snuck in. And, you know, I'm talking to him. I'm going, going man, this is alcoholism, all right? Whatever you think, this is alcoholism, and, and you're going to let alcoholism kill you. You come with us. Come with us. Go to the meetings. Work with us. Grab one of us as a sponsor. Do the steps and come live your life with us. We can show you how to survive. Please do that. He's like, oh, like this, right? 
He went to like one meeting after he got out of the hospital with us. And then the whole, this whole thing is like an overreaction, all these steps and meetings. And, and we lost him again. He slipped out of our hands again. Back in the hospital with a third one, which is beyond miraculous that you even survived this. Now, now when, you, when you see this, when you see this level of insanity, on people, and we're right there. We're we're identifying with them, and we're com- you know, come on, it'll be fun. I mean, we're we're the right kind of people to be twelve step on this guy, and and to see that utter lack of enthusiasm to recover, it's it, it, it's horrible to witness, and you witness it every day in the rooms of AA when you see people that all they want to do is just come to a couple of meetings, leave me alone about all this other stuff. Now, they may be at a place in their alcoholism where they can survive doing that. But the recovery process in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter where you are on the scale of alcoholism, is going to get you to a place where you're safe and protected, where you're recovered from alcoholism, and where your life can really start to open up and become wonderful. You know, only... Only in addiction and alcoholism is the treatment for it so beneficial to one's person and personality and, and life, life system. I mean, it's a wonderful treatment because of all the, the benefits that you get, you know, on the side. Like cholera treatment, you know, you don't, you don't know a new freedom and a new happiness when you get treated for cholera. You know, you don't have a fellowship about, uh, about you that you can ultimately enjoy. Friends for life. You don't get all that with, like, cholera treatment. But with alcoholism, you, uh, you do. That's, that's one of the benefits. It's one of the most amazing recovery processes on the planet. And there are a lot of people out there who are dying of chronic illness that would love to have a way out that we have that would embrace it with every fiber of their being. And yet, we're half-measuring practically everything on a daily basis. You know, and I'm including my, myself in that, just because that's, that's the way it is. So what do you need to do? You need to understand alcoholism. You need to understand what powerlessness is, because if you think you are going to do it, if you think all you need to do is go to AA, and use AA like a pep rally, like, yay, yay, we don't drink today, you know, see you back here on Tuesday break, you know. I mean, if that's what you think uh, AA is, you just need to be reminded one more time not to drink, and you just need to be reminded, that, that's, that's not it. That's, that's not it. That's not what AA is about. AA is about offering a new freedom, a new happiness, offering a new way to live. Offering, uh, offering to place yourself uh, within a series of spiritual exercises that are going to uh, allow you to become reborn spiritually, and you know that's that's uh, that's what uh, that's what happened to me. <clears throat> Another thing I think that's very important with the first step is becoming becoming uh, as good as you can be at transmitting the first step experience. Because if you stay around AA long enough, you're going to need to work with other people. You're going to need to do 12-step calls. You're going to need to sponsor. 
And when you do that, you need to understand what the first step is. You need to not just tell your sponsee, here's my phone number, give me a call if you get in trouble. I'll see you at home group. You know, that, you might as well hand them a, a handgun uh, if you're going to sponsor like that. So we need, to un- we need to understand how to transmit, how to, how to transmit our experience of the first step so somebody can identify. Somebody can identify that. And when you paint them into a corner, when you paint them into a corner, they're going to become willing. They're going to become willing to do the things that you need to do to get the job done and recover from alcoholism. If you don't understand your problem, why would you engage in the solution with everything you have? So we need to really get good at explaining what the first step is and what it's all about. Um, I think a lot of people today really identify with the unmanageability. They they identify with uh, that emotional and spiritual unmanageability because there's a lot of damage that that's that's done to our uh, uh, you know to our emotional state out there in this type of a world you know where the modern age is is has not been good uh, to the spiritual or emotional condition. There's just so much going on out there that can cause us distress, uh, and alcoholism compounds that. You know so um, so we need to be able to talk about that the spiritual unmanageability. We need to be able to get the person to identify with some of the, some of the things that we've suffered from too. But we need to be recovered from those things so that we can say, yes, I was like you. I've felt that way. I don't feel that way anymore. And that's really what uh, a 12-step call is. It's basically uh, you know, explaining to somebody that you're, you're exactly the same, you're just a little bit further on the path, that you've found a way out, a way out that we can, uh, we can all agree on. So, um, mental obsession, um, physical allergy, spiritual, emotional, mental unmanageability, that's the first step. Um, Look to your own experience where some of those things manifested and how you personally experienced those three things. That's your first step. Um, take, that, take that out into the world and share that with people who are still sick and suffering. And there's hope. You know, there is a, there's a recovery process that, um, that we can survive. There's not enough people with alcoholism out there surviving today. You know, we can really, uh, each one of us can make a difference. Each one of us can save a lot of lives if we pay attention to this. And nothing, nothing will so much ensure your own, um, your own ability to stay away from alcohol than intensive work with other alcoholics. And I'll tell you this, my best friends today come from the people that I've, I've 12-stepped. Um, my whole social world, uh, most of my social world comes from people that are in recovery. I love alcoholics. I really do. There's something way special about us. We, we burn bright and we see deep. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, our experience is just a little bit twisted. And it makes for some very, very interesting people. And I love alcoholics and I would do anything... Uh, you know, anything to make the plight of the alcoholic that much better. And 
Um, I want to thank Lisa for, uh, for asking me to come down here tonight. And in, in the weeks to come, Karen Karate from Morris Plains is going to be uh, doing the even steps. Uh, I'm sorry, the odd steps. Uh, the men will be doing the even. Uh, we're going to try to bring different people down here, keep it interesting, uh, keep it alive, uh, get you some different, uh, different perspectives on these steps. And, you know, please keep coming. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.